Hey, listen, um, I would, my assigned topic this week is glorification. And uh, so what's that, um, glorification? Basically, it goes like this. The Bible um, drama unfolds in four acts, right? Creation, uh, the fall, redemption, and then restoration, uh, resulting in glorification. Glory is the end of the story. Got it? Very simple, right? God made an awesome world. We screwed it up. God um, wasn't content to just let us um, uh, wander away from him. Uh, he intervened. He put on flesh. He came into the world to uh, rescue uh, the world and lost humanity. And um, uh, the, the restoration has begun. And when it's complete, then we have uh, glorification. So we have this awesome future. So we're going to talk this week about that future. But the aim of getting a grasp of the glorious future that awaits all who belong to Jesus is that we have strength for today. Strength for bright hope for tomorrow uh, gives us strength for um, today to transform our life today. Two weeks ago this night, I was in Peru with my two sons and two son-in-laws, and we were uh, hiking the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu. It's the hardest thing physically um, I've ever uh, attempted uh, in my life. Um, not the hardest thing I attempted. I, I was in Louisiana once. But the, um, um, the, the hardest physical challenge um, I've ever attempted. And on the second day particularly, you have to climb up to 14,000 feet, five straight hours, uh, dead up. Not just uphill, not just a, a, an upward grade, but actually climbing steps uh, for five straight hours uh, to 14,000 feet. And I'm from the state of Florida, which means that I'm... I'm I'm used to living at four feet um, uh, sea level, uh, above sea level. And the one thing that sustained me in, in, uh, in, in that arduous day was I pictured myself at Machu Picchu with my sons, with my son-in-laws. The end of the journey with the people um, I loved um, gave me strength in the, in the middle of, uh, of climbing in an arduous day. It's, it's a glorious tomorrow that gives us strength. For today, So Stan, would you, we're going to read from God's Word. Uh, if you're able to stand, I realize your seat might be taken by somebody else when you go to sit down, um, but let's risk it. Revelation chapter um, 19, and we're going to read the first nine verses as we give our attention um, to the Word of God. So after this, uh, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. You know that hallelujah is a common term. We're, we're familiar with that. Um, um, uh, hallel, praise, Yah, Yahweh, praise God is what it means. Um, but this is the only place in the New Testament it's found. Isn't that interesting? Uh, in this passage. Um, and so we read um, in verse 5, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, 
and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Oh, may God bless this reading of his holy, infallible, and inspired word. You may be seated, please. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding. Are you invited to the wedding? Are you going to the wedding? Have you responded to the invitation? You know, getting the invite uh, really matters. Getting the invite can uh, be life-changing in people's lives. When you're in second grade and all the other kids in your second grade class get invited to the birthday party, you know, it matters to a second grader whether they get uh, the invite uh, as well. When you're a junior high uh, boy and you try out for the junior high basketball team, and believe me, you're scared to death. And uh, the day the gym coach is going to post on his door the, the guys who are selected to the team, I mean, you get your parents to drop you off for school early and you try not to, you know, try to be casual walking through the hallways, but you're, you're aiming for the door uh, of that coach because you got to know whether you got the invite or not. And if you didn't, you might never play, uh, you might never try to play uh, a sport again. It matters, you know, when you're a, uh, a girl and, uh, and the prom's coming and uh, much, as, uh, much as we might tell ourselves our, our value and identity isn't tied up in such things, sometimes getting the invite makes all the difference, um, doesn't it? Some of you are, are about to finish college, right? Uh, all that effort put into getting a degree, all the money, all the work, uh, is anybody going to want you? Is anybody going to hire you? Is there going to be a company that comes and gives you the ask, you know, gives you um, the invite? I mean, yeah, I mean we, you guys are used to this whole getting the, I mean, have, have any of you heard of the show The Bachelor? Because I know it's RUF and I know a highly spiritual um, um, group, and I, I went around all the rooms just to check here at, at Laguna Beach. None of them's called the Fantasy Suite, I'm assured of that. And uh, so the, the, uh, the Bachelor, um, 25 girls start, and, uh, and only one is going to get what? Only one's going to get the ask in, in what will be the most epic rose ceremony um, ever. Um, by the way, apparently not many of you, uh, you guys are, are, are studying the Bible, not watching The Bachelor, but, you know, for those of you who did, um, just say a, a, a moment of silence because Ben and Lauren are on the outs, because Lauren's struggling because she knows that he told JoJo that he loves her too. Um, so just, in your small groups, take a moment. Um, Hey, getting the ask can, uh, can, change, uh, can change a life. Um, I, I remember talking to a, uh, a young woman um, who, whose life had kind of uh, been somewhat storybook and then sort of plunged into, you know, uh, drugs and partying and, and really gone off the rails. 
And, uh, and so was there anything? Was there anything that precipitated that sort of turn in, in your life? And, uh, and this young woman said, well, I can remember distinctly. I was in 10th grade, and, uh, and the group of kids that I'd kind of grown up with, and I'd been a cheerleader, she said, um, up to that point. And then in 10th grade, I tried out, and they all made the team again. And I'd always been a part of that group, and I'd always been one of, uh, one of those popular kids and I didn't get chosen again, and that was it. That, sent, that rejection I felt then sent me on a downward um, spiral. Getting the ask uh, can make all the difference. Max Licato writes of, uh, of a college girl. Uh, he says, I remember she was shy and unsure of herself. She didn't stand out in the crowd and seemed to like it that way. She didn't wear makeup, she didn't dress up, she was ordinary. But one day all that changed. Her hair changed, her dress changed, even her voice changed. She spoke with confidence. What made the difference? She was chosen. A young man she loved looked her squarely in the eye and said, come spend forever with me. It makes a difference. It can make a lifetime's difference. So there is an ask that changes everything. It is when your life's path collides with the grace of God. And Jesus uh, says to you, uh, I want you to spend your life with me. I want to do life with you. That's the ask that has the power um, to change everything. So we're talking about the end of the story. And you might have thought that the end of the story is heaven. But that's not where the story ends. The story ends with a wedding. It's a, it's a wedding you do not want to miss. After all, it's yours. So blessed is he who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the first point we want to see about this passage is that um, while it's wildly encouraging, it starts on a, on a dissonant uh, note. The passage begins with the betrayal of the betrothed. The betrayal of the betrothed. You know, the, the, the passage is glorious. Hallelujah, hallelujah, because the prince is coming. The prince is coming to claim the princess, his, his long-awaited um, and beloved bride. And so there's such rapturous worship in Revelation chapter 19. But uh, to understand this passage, you have to understand something about Jewish, um, the way that a, a Jewish wedding would roll. Uh, in the Jewish wedding uh, culture, it began with betrothal. <clears throat> the guy would... Um, make arrangements with the bride's family, his family with her family, but then he would approach the woman that he wanted to um, be united with in marriage, and, uh, and he would make the ask. And uh, interestingly enough, if she said yes, he would offer her a, 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 a glass of wine, a goblet of wine, and if she said yes, she took um, the wine. Here's the thing about betrothal, um, somewhat like engagement that we have today, except for it was legally binding. So if you were betrothed, to become unbetrothed required judicial action. It required getting a divorce. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was a done deal uh, in that culture that you were going to get uh, married. So here we have a picture of Jesus coming to claim his um, future bride who he's betrothed to which is the wild imagery in the Bible. I mean, the Bible strains from beginning to end, in a sense, to, to answer this question. How do, how do people like us, creatures, relate to God? We are not like him. 
Um, and, uh, and so how can, how can God, in a sense, dumb it down? How can God uh, actually reveal himself in some way that we can actually relate to um, who he is? And so the Bible uses a whole collection of metaphors, um, doesn't it? The Bible says that God is a king and we're the subjects, right? We're to be the loyal subjects of the king. And that's helpful, right? And then the Bible says that we're, uh, that God's a shepherd and we're the what? <laughs> Which is really insulting um, because sheep are dumb and, uh, and helpless. And that's sort of a humbling um, analogy, but it's helpful, right? And then the Bible says that God is a father and, uh, and we're children, and that's, that's really um, helpful. But nowhere is the Bible so daring as when the Bible says this, that, uh, that God is the groom and we're the bride. I mean, the audacity of the Bible. Can you imagine Islam saying anything like this? Imagine in Islam, this would be considered the highest of, uh, uh, of that which was uh, blasphemous. To suggest intimacy with God, the intimacy of a, of a man and a woman, of a husband uh, and a bride. Here the, here the Bible's just crackling with, um, with daring to even suggest um, such a thing. I mean, the Old Testament says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. So we are, we are actually betrothed to Jesus. That's what it says in Hosea. I will betroth you to me forever. In righteousness and in justice and love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then Paul says in the New Testament, I feel a, a jealousy, a divine jealousy for you. Since I betroth you to one husband, I betroth you to present you as a pure virgin to Jesus. So we are the betrothed. You got it? Here we are in the Bible narrative. Now here's where things go uh, awry in the story. Betrothal was a time of preparation. When, when you got betrothed, the future um, bride and groom were separated, and they were not to see each other until they were uh, married. This might go on for weeks. More likely, this would go on for months, okay? And they're separated. Now, remember, here's where we are right now. We're betrothed to Jesus. We're separated, right? We don't see him. He's not here with us. We are, we are betrothed, but we're separated. Same situation. So when you are betrothed, uh, this is a time of preparation. The woman would be gathering all the um, um, uh, uh, things necessary to make a household. She would be getting uh, tutored and schooled by the other women in her world on, uh, on the ways of a wife, uh, right? She would be getting prepared. What would the man be doing? He'd be on the couch watching SportsCenter. But no, what would the man be doing? The man would be um, building a place for them, Right? You know, when, when he left the woman, what would he say to her? He would say, in my father's house, there's many rooms, and I go and prepare a place um, for you. And, uh, and when it's ready, I will come, and I will receive you um, to myself, and uh, there you'll go with me, and we'll be together forever. Who said that? Jesus said that. When did Jesus say that? He said that to the disciples right before he left, right when they were afraid because they realized he was leaving them. Jesus used the very words of the culture, the very words that a groom would use uh, to speak uh, encouragement to his future bride. This is what betrothal was all about. He's away, he's building a place for them. What was not uh, envisioned during betrothal was that there would be another party enter into the relationship while they're separated 
that the bride would have, there would be another suitor would move in and that somebody would steal the heart of, uh, of the bride, that she would give her, uh, her affection to another. And in Revelation chapter 19, that, um, uh, that false lover, that, that new lover that sneaks in to steal away the bride is called the whore of Babylon. Uh, and that really represents the entire world system that would, uh, that would speak to us and say, don't do life with Jesus. Life with Jesus is a waste. Um, you can do better uh, than that. Um, that's the prostitute, the great prostitute of Revelation 19 is the seductive um, influence of the world. So the Bible is telling us here that the bride forgot she was engaged. She forgot she was spoken for. And she became adulterous. All right. So there, there's our first point in this narrative. And you know what we learn from this? We, get a, we get, learn something about the nature of sin. Uh, because we like to think very often when we're from a church culture that, um, that sin is, is breaking the rules. And you see, if God's a king uh, or God's the Lord, then, you know, then, then sin is jaywalking, right? Sin is not paying your taxes, um, so Christians who go to church like to think that sin, God said some stuff not to do it, and if you do it, you've broken the rules. Um, but if God is your husband, then sin's more personal than that. Sin's not breaking the rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. Sin is a being unfaithful. Sin is adultery. Sin is choosing to love something more than you love God. Sin is making something more central uh, in your life, uh, giving uh, you know, the chief passion, the ardor of your life. After all, what's the very first commandment? Thou shalt have what? No other gods. No other gods before me. Not gonna, uh, I'm not going to allow it, um, God says. He is to have, uh, he is to have our hearts. Um, God says, I don't want you just to be good subjects and obey my laws. I don't want you just to be good sheep and follow me. I want your heart. So a woman finds out that her husband at work has formed a, uh, a real bond with a, with a woman at work. And uh, they have lunch together. They're often seen laughing together. Sometimes they cry together. They share their fears. They share their dreams. They uh, they just wouldn't miss that time. They cherish their time. She finds out about that. How does she feel about that? She's pretty ripped about that, right? So she lets him uh, know she's got a problem with that. And then her husband says to her, are you kidding me? Your name is on the uh, marriage certificate. You know, your name is on the mortgage to this house. I come to the home to this house um, to you. Um, I, uh, I share a bed with you. You get my last name, not her. And... Uh, and I cut, the, I cut the lawn, right? I mean, what more do you want? What would she say? I want your what? I want your heart. I want your heart. So we say to God, come on. I go to RUF. I'm, I, I don't I only do large group. I'm in a small group. I'm on the leadership team. You know, I went to the freaking summer conference, you know? And uh, I tithe. I'm in a church. I keep the rules. What more do you want? And what would God say? I want your heart. 
I could say, I've seen the way you look at your favorite sports team. I've seen the way you follow college football. I just wish for once I saw that kind of passion for me. I see the lust you have for your friend's approval. I see the way you uh, hang on, uh, on your boyfriend's, uh, you know. God say, gosh, I see the way you love yourself. I mean, you take pictures of yourself. Um, you'd never miss your workout. I mean, for my goodness, I see the way you love your coffee, you know. Um, love the Lord your God with all your, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Sin isn't breaking the rules. It's betraying the betrothed. Can I tell you something? If you have a friend who's unfaithful, Maybe one of your parents was unfaithful. Maybe your, maybe your boyfriend or girlfriend or ex-boyfriend or girlfriend were unfaithful. You better get off your high horse about judging them because you're unfaithful. You're unfaithful to God. That's a far cry worse than, than, than any unfaithfulness to another person. The bottom line is, we will get into bed with anything other than God. So I just wanted to start Summer Conference out on that encouraging note. <laughs> this passage begins dark, um, but it has to, to make the astounding second point, and that is, um, in this passage, we see that the bride is actually made ready, which, I mean, just begs the question then, how does betrothal to an unfaithful bride lead to a wedding. How do you have a bride like this, a bride that abandons, you know, a runaway bride? I already, I already signaled where this message is going. It's going to a wedding, right? So how do you get from where we are, an unfaithful woman, um, to a glorious wedding? Well, we know it wouldn't happen except for the grace of the groom who binds himself to the bride, and he'll do whatever it takes um, to make her ready. So real quick, two things. What does the, the groom do in this passage that we're told to make the bride ready? To be ready for the wedding, the bride, now listen, this is the father of the bride's worst day of his life. It's, it's, it's wedding dress shopping, right? <laughs> it's the worst nightmare. Uh, what does the groom do? He provides the wedding dress. How will the immoral woman wear white on her wedding day? Isaiah chapter 61 uh, tells us in the Old Testament in a, in a passage that may appear on your screen any moment. All right. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my salvation, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Our husband produces the righteous life that makes... Listen, what does the New Testament say? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her to make her what? Anybody know? Spotless, without blemish, totally pure. Who can make the whore pure? Only Jesus. Only God. He provides us by, by his righteousness, by his righteous deeds. Become our, listen, the Bible's got a problem right from the beginning. We're naked and we're unashamed. And then we um, divorce God and we realize our shame, and we cover ourselves with fig leaves, fig leaves. 
It's not going to work. We live these lives of pathetic covering of ourselves. And only Jesus can provide the covering of, uh, of perfection. One of the seminars is on perfectionism, right? There is one who is perfect. He's our husband. And he provides the wedding dress of clothing that allows us to appear before God, righteous and beautiful and glorious and forgiven in his eyes. When we have memorial services at our church, we had one a couple weeks ago. A guy named Ross died. Ross Kuntz. Ross was in our church for 25 years. So you know the way a memorial service often goes is there's lots of kind words said about the person who died. And they did this and they did that and they were wonderful and they were an icon in the community and they served the church and and it goes on and on. And, uh, and, and I say many of those um, nice words. And then there comes a point in the message where I look out at the crowd, many of whom, Ross was a golf professional, and, uh, and many of the people from his club and his other circles were there, and uh, lots of non-Christians. And you look out and you say, in all the glorious things that Ross did in his life, I gotta be, I gotta be honest and tell you, Ross is not qualified to go to heaven. And, they look, and then you could just see the jaws drop around the room. Ross is not qualified to go to heaven. And, uh, and neither are you. And neither was Mother Teresa. And neither was, you know, the Apostle Peter. Not, neither was Paul or Mary, for that matter, either. Peter, Paul, or Mary. Um, so, thank you. Yeah, um, but to be able to say... Um, Ross did a wise thing. Ross decided that he wasn't going to stand before God uh, based on his standing in his own performance. He was going to rest on the performance of Jesus. Got it? This is the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's yours if you belong um, to Jesus. You know, it's like, uh, like um, you can be impoverished, but if you marry somebody who's wealthy, the day before you're married, that money's not yours. The day you get married unless you signed a prenup, the day you get married, that money is yours. It's legally yours. It's really yours. You didn't earn it. It wasn't yours. Now it is yours. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it, but it's yours. The day you're married to Jesus, the day you're betrothed to Jesus, his righteousness, completely yours. And what else does the groom do? He pays the dowry, right? He not only provides the wedding dress, he pays the dowry. Here's the way it went. During the betrothal, the groom had to pay the bride's father the, the price. Um, he had to give her cattle or livestock or, or, or wealth or money or, or service. Remember in the scriptures, what do we have? We have uh, Jacob in the Old Testament, and he wants Rachel. Rachel is um, sparklingly um, beautiful. And so Jacob has to work for Rachel's father for seven years, Laban, uh, to get her hand in marriage. And then he makes a big mistake, does Jacob, on his wedding night. He must have had too much to drink, right? Because in the middle of the night, his father-in-law slips not Rachel into the tent, but Rachel's older sister. Let's just say she wasn't Rachel. And, um, and the Bible has one of those great uh, passages in all of Scripture and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> um, it was almost as bad as Sammy Rhodes' honeymoon. Um, but, uh, well, read the book, read the book. Um, 
I had to work seven more years, did, uh, did Jacob. Uh, Jesus assumes uh, the, the debt of his bride, right? It is called the marriage supper of the what? The wedding of the what? The wedding of the lamb, because it's a lamb that's going to be slain, the blood of Jesus. In John chapter 2, something very interesting happens. Jesus and his mother are at a wedding, remember? And, uh, and something happens at the wedding. Remember, there was a catering faux pas, right? And they run out of wine. It was a huge embarrassment. And so Jesus' mother turns to him and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. <laughs> now, you know, the Bible doesn't include every word of every conversation. We know that because at that point, Mary would have said what? She says, well, they're out of wine. And Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And Mary would have said what? Huh? What? <laughs> what? What does that got to do with anything? And scholars wonder, why did Jesus say that? Why did he make that response? And you know what scholars think? Is that Jesus was thinking of his wedding. When you're single and you're at a wedding, often as things are unfolding, you're often thinking about how it will be at your wedding, that Jesus was thinking of his wedding. And in, and in the Jewish culture, if there was no wine, there was no joy. Wine was the joy of, uh, of the wedding. If my bride is going to fall into my arms, Jesus is thinking, and, and if she's going to drink the wine of joy then I am going to have to drink the cup of God's justice. That's what it means when he says, my hour, the hour of my death has not yet come. If I'm going to have my bride, then I am going to have to drink the cup of God's justice. It will take my death to pay her dowry, my death to have my bride. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. He provides the dress that covers her. He, um, he takes away every spot and, and blemish. He pays her dowry. Peggy Noonan's one of my favorite columnists. She writes for the Wall Street Journal. And, and uh, a couple years ago, she wrote a column on masculinity. She said, it's, it's dying in our culture, and that's not good for our culture. We need it. And... Um, she told the story of a couple who went on their honeymoon in New Zealand and they were in the, at the beach in the water and on their honeymoon and the woman got attacked by a shark and she said the husband jumped the shark and he began to punch the shark and the shark uh, turned from his um, bride and the shark killed him. It's a tragic story but Peggy Noonan was saying are there men out there who will punch the shark? She said one of her friends called her right after she uh, told that story and said, that's why I'm single. I'm, I'm looking for a guy who'll punch the shark. Um, look no further. You have one. Your husband, Jesus. Peter Hyatt said, the marriage covenant takes two different incomplete sinful people and binds them together in nakedness despite their shame, is a picture of Christ and his church. It's sheer and absolute insanity to vow yourself unconditionally to another fallen, sinful, needy person. You'd have to be crazy to get married. Yet Jesus is married. Is he crazy? And the answer is, yes, he is. Crazy for his bride. He's crazy for you. We run and we run, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We run after other lovers, but he will not let us 
get away. You cannot outrun his love. Got it? The bride is made ready, and then last of all, the feast, the great feast begins. The angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the Israelite wedding, when all the preparation was complete, what would happen? The groom would leave um, his house, and in a, in a, often in a torchlight procession, he would make his way to the bride's house. He would claim his bride, and then the whole wedding party would proceed back to his house, and they would begin a party that would last. Does anyone know how long? For seven days at least, sometimes for 14 days. Can you imagine paying for that? A 14-day wedding reception. There is nothing in our culture, there is nothing in North American culture which even comes close to capturing the unmitigated joy of the Jewish wedding feast. I'll tell you, the one place we ought to find it captured is, uh, is in the church. The church ought to be the place where people experience um, the feast. That's why, that's why Kevin sang that last song um, tonight about the feasting in Zion. I just read an article, very interesting. It, it surprised me. Well, the saddest place in the United States and the happiest place in the United States was one of those articles, and, and you know, argues that they could decide such a thing. But the saddest place in the United States, this article posited through some kind of survey and, and rubric they'd set up, is New York City. So that wasn't a surprise. Um, but you know what, the, the, uh, of the happiest places in the United States, four of the top five happiest places in the United States were in the state of Louisiana. And I, I've been to Louisiana, and I, so I was befuddled. And um, um, no, you know why? You know why the article said? Because they feast there like nowhere else. They, uh, they, they gather, they eat. The whole culture is, uh, is, is uh, imbued with this sense of feasting and eating. Can I say something? Your RUF groups ought to, this conference ought to reflect that. Our, your RUF groups, your churches ought to reflect that. That's why in our church, whether it's, whether it's coffee, whether it's beer, whether it's wine, whether it's donuts, whether it's cupcakes, whether it's barbecue, uh, we want to be together eating, eating, eating all the time because heaven is a feast with your friends, and, uh, and we like practicing. Um, so a couple things about, um, about the love of our husband. So, so lean in here. The love of our husband, and we're finished. The love of our husband is satisfying. It's the only thing that will satisfy us. There is no human being that can meet the deepest longings of your soul. Most of you in this room, I, I suspect, are not married. And, uh, and yet you have the sense that were I to be married, well, that would be awesome. That would satisfy a part of me. That would fill some of the deepest longings of my heart. And the answer is no. It will not fill the deepest longing of your heart. Um, the, the, the love of your husband, Jesus, is the only thing um, that will. And I want to tell you something. When I, when I entered into marriage, I entered into marriage with the idea that, that I wanted to be cherished I wanted to be adored. I wanted to be cheered for. I wanted somebody to be for me all the time. And uh, so I just thought this was a great deal, marriage. I got married um, very young, but I married to fill a void in my soul. And I saddled our marriage with the demand that my wife fill me with her love and her respect and her appreciation. And I worked hard to earn it, to be worthy of it. 
And when I didn't get it, she got my um, coldness and my distance and my punishment. Um, I was just desperate for it. And if I, if I, if I wasn't going to get it from her, where was I going to get it from? Now, mind you, I'm a preacher all the time. This is happening. And I'm preaching all about Jesus. And, and, and yet I just about killed her love for me. I just about killed our, our marriage. Um, we struggled horribly. And the game changer for us was when I began to experience Jesus. Jesus' inexhaustible love for me. That this is what was going to fill me. Um, and uh, then I was able to move toward my wife to give to her rather than demand from her. So, you know, so many people in our churches who are single, so long, marriage is it. And so many people in our church who are married long to be single. (laughs) I hate to tell you. Um, Because they think, uh, gosh, if I could get rid of the louse, then my life would be so much better. Um, But no spouse can satisfy your longing. Jesus is what your heart wants. Dixie Chicks sing that song, How Long Do You Want to Be Loved? How long do you want to be loved? Is forever enough? There's only one who will love you forever. It's what your heart really wants. Only your husband can satisfy you. Secondly, the love of your husband is instructive. What he loves, we should love. He loves his bride. Guess what? That bride's not singular, it's plural. He loves, he loves the church. Um, so I'd ask that of you. Do you, uh, because in our day we know that people say, I love Jesus, but what? The church, not so much. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm crazy about God, and you don't have to be a church, go to church to be a Christian. Uh, but, you know, I like what John Piper, he said, you're free to abandon your wife when Jesus abandons his. Um, his is the church, his bride. A friend of mine's pastor in uh, New Mexico. He was writing about his church. He said, Martha had a huge landscape business in Kansas City. She ran the company with her lesbian partner. Her partner, partner stole hundreds of thousands of dollars and jilted her. Martha fled, filed bankruptcy and wandered in her truck to Santa Fe. She slept in her truck in the church parking lot a few nights because she liked our landscaping. She came to church and found Jesus. Devin, as a young father, has joined our church. His wife left him. He's a former agnostic scientist. He came to Jesus and is now bringing his two Montessori hippie kids with him. There's Jay and L. Jay and L are a young married couple. It came out last summer that one of them was having multiple affairs. They got on their knees and they asked for help. And that partner came to faith and the other did too. They're new creatures in Christ and I think their marriage is going to survive. Roy is 50. He's married to M, who's beautiful, 30. He's starting a new round of private equity holdings. His last hedge fund sold for $2 billion in New York City two years ago. So here's Roy at this church party, a yoga devotee, hedge funder, talking to new in Jesus Martha, the recently homeless former lesbian. They're laughing and becoming friends. That's the church of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing menagerie of broken people who are finding life and hope in Jesus. Whatever you can do is find a church that's like that. Find a church that has people like that or make your church the welcoming kind of place that people like that will come to because Jesus loves his bride, his church. Let it be instructive for us that we love what our husband loves. And last thing I'd say is the love of our husband is consoling. It's consoling. At the wedding with his mother, 
Jesus sat in the midst of all that wedding joy, thinking of what? His coming sorrow. He sat in the midst of all the wedding joy, thinking of his coming sorrow. We sit in the midst of earthly pain, and we sip the coming joy. We sit in the midst of our pain, thinking of our future wedding. Life in this world sucks, doesn't it? Betrayal, divorce, rape, sexual abuse, addiction, cancer, miscarriage. You know, I'm, I'm hiking with my boys up to Machu Picchu. It's, it's a trip of a lifetime. We stopped in one of the Inca ruins, and our guide was, was giving our group a little talk. I had my four sons with me, and, I, and, and there were some other people in the party. And I looked down as he's giving a talk to cute little girl who was hiking up there with us. She was a great athlete. I looked down and I just saw her arm and there were scars all the way up her arm. She'd been cutting. Our world is filled with, uh, with sorrow. What sustains us in the midst of it? Our wedding. Our wedding's coming. Our future wedding. It's the consolation that our husband's coming back. He's preparing a place for us. He knows your name. How long do you want to be loved? Is forever enough? It's the only thing that's enough. Do, do you know that on Easter morning in Pakistan in the city of Lahore, moms bundled up their little kids and dressed them in their Easter finest and they went to a party in the park. And the Taliban thought it'd be a wonderful day to send um, suicide bombers in the midst of the party. And they blew up women and children on Easter morning, Christians, most of them. And so you go to the Easter party in Pakistan and you come home with your children's blood dripping off your face. This is what it's like for Christians in the world for 2,000 years. What sustains them? It's the wedding. It's the wedding. This is their consolation. Friends, the Bible ends with a complete shocker. Some of you watched Downton Abbey. Thank, thank goodness for Downton Abbey. It allowed men to watch a soap opera with dignity. <laughs> and uh, Downton Abbey ended a couple months ago. And how did it end? It ended with a what? With a wedding. And it was a shocker because the person getting married at the end of Downton Abbey was the spinster sister, Edith, the sister that nobody ever wanted. But she became the chosen. She became the beloved. Guess how the Bible ends? The Bible ends with a wedding. The wedding of, of the bride that nobody wanted. It's a wedding you can't miss. Because after all, it's your wedding. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Father, this week, would you make it very real to us? Even to the guys sitting here, say, what's this about being the bride? I don't get it. What it means that... Um, we are the object of your eye. We are your delight. Would you um, make the reality of your love um, real to us in a way that we experience it? 
um, so that even out of us will come a kind, gracious affection for the other people in our campus ministry group, for the other people in this conference, for the people we're going to encounter, because we will carry ourselves as as those, as the unfaithful woman who's been loved. We pray this in Jesus' name.